Well, good evening and welcome on behalf of the Center for the Study of Religion. I'm Robert Wuffno, the director of the Center. Thank you for being here this evening. Tonight, as you know, is the inaugural lecture of the Dahl Family Lectureship on Religion and Money. And we are very pleased that Hank and Mary Dahl are here tonight. Would you please stand up? Hank is a member of the class of 58 and uh, has been a generous supporter of Princeton University for many years. I got to know Hank through Michelle Minter, uh, who knew him in Cleveland, and Hank has been a member of our advisory board for the center uh, for the past several years. Uh, and we just had our advisory council meeting this past Thursday evening and Friday. Hank and Mary are people who take religion and philanthropy very seriously. And so we're delighted that uh, this lectureship is in honor of their family and especially of uh, Hank's father, Edward Dahl, class of 25, um, who was an inspiration for the family uh, as far as philanthropy was concerned. And hopefully uh, you have had or will take the opportunity to read the information in your leaflet about the family's background and interests and especially about this pur the purpose of this lectureship, which is to emphasize the fact that whatever religious tradition you look at, one finds a great deal written and taught in those religious traditions about money and especially about the wise use of money and the generous use of money for charitable giving and social service. And yet, for reasons that are rather peculiar, academics haven't paid much attention to this topic of religion and philanthropy. Back in 1990, when Virginia Hodgkinson, who was working at Independent Sector in Washington, and I put together a volume, an edited volume, called Faith and Philanthropy, we found that there was hardly anything on that topic in the literature. So we're delighted and continue to be and look forward to this lecture, which starts this evening. We hope especially that the lectureship will enrich our understanding of the teachings and practices of various religious traditions toward money, whether that be Christianity or Judaism or Islam or other religions. And we also hope that students here at the university and our guests from the community will be encouraged to think more seriously about the relationships between religious values and issues having to do with money. To introduce our speaker this evening, I'm going to call on Professor Sam Katz of the Woodrow Wilson School. Professor Katz has himself written extensively about these topics and teaches about these topics. Stan? Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure to be part of this this evening. The uh, the lectureship is a welcome addition to to this campus, and it's a welcome addition to the national discussion on what is a really important uh, subject. Uh, and we couldn't have done better than the inaugural lecture uh, this evening, Dick DeVos. Never met uh, Dick before, and I was sent his. Um, CV 
a few days ago by David Michelson, and it's a it's a dazzling and more than dazzling, fascinating one because he's done so many different kinds of things. It really does exemplify uh, what it is we hope that citizens uh, in this republic are going to stand for. And I'm just going to run through a few of the the things so you will get some idea, and I will leave it to uh, to Dick to explain himself to you. He's had basically a business career, um, a remarkably distinguished uh, business career. Um, he has been involved with uh, Amway, with the Amway Corporation, for most of his business career, starting um, in the mid-1970s. <clears throat> He's been going on through various iterations of that corporation and complex of businesses. Uh, he rose to be the uh, president in 1993 of uh, Altacor, which was formerly Amway, and then uh, he's subsequently, but also simultaneously, as far as I can understand this, founded an investment company called WinQuest, of which he is currently uh, the principal and president. So that's the sort of obvious, successful, useful business career. That's money. Um, and uh, Dick DeVos has obviously been a not only a successful but a re very responsible businessman. But he probably wouldn't be here if that was all he had done. Um, he, from the beginning of his career, as far as I can tell, has been involved in his community and in the larger communities of which he is a, a part. And to me, that's the most interesting thing on the CV. He was, by the way, as early as 1978, a board member of directors of Project Rehab. He's from Grand Rapids, which is a community drug rehabilitation program uh, in the city. And the CV shows a steady progression of other kinds of community involvements over a long period of time, including, uh, from our point of view, interesting uh, uh, governing positions on the boards of several different educational institutions, um, including uh, being an elected member of the Michigan State Board of Education for a couple of years in the early uh, 1990s. He's been involved with the Board of Control of Grand Valley State University, an important uh, local university in Michigan. Um, more important, probably, he's been involved with the Education Freedom Fund, uh, which is uh, uh, an operation that has been involved in urban revitalization uh, in Grand Rapids, including the development of an arena, a convention center, a heart hospital, uh, and it's simply typical of the number of things he has done. And he is also interesting to me because I'm a sports nut. Um, has been the uh, president CEO of the Orlando Magic. Um, basketball franchise, not my favorite basketball team because I'm a Bulls fan, but that's all right. Um, I'm impressed. Uh, I'm deeply impressed by that. But uh, he has been all along, as uh, we hope our students will be, uh, not only interested in but involved in politics, and most recently in 2006 was the Republican candidate for governor uh, in, uh, in the state of Michigan. So he models the kinds of civic uh, values uh, that uh, this university is interested in, I hope that everyone here is interested in. And he's also uh, a man of faith, or I suppose he wouldn't be here tonight, and he wants to talk to us uh, about the relationship between faith and money. Dick. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Stan. I, I'm 
the uh, Detroit Pistons have not been particularly impressed with the Detroit with the Orlando Magic this series so far either, uh, as we're 0-2 in the playoffs as we head to game as we head to game three. So uh, please don't don't be too impressed by that. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, for us a uh, my wife Betsy and I a great honor to to be here and certainly in this uh, inaugural. Uh, Lecture, uh, lectureship, and for us to, uh, it gave us a great excuse to come out and visit our daughter, our daughter Elizabeth, who is a senior here. So we look forward to coming back to celebrate with her in June uh, as well. That'll be a big day in our family. Uh, my thanks, uh, my thanks to the Dahl family for the provision of this dialogue and this discussion as we as we look at the intersection of some things that are very important to, to our culture, to our community, and to many of us personally as we look at the issues of faith uh, and uh, of finance and we look at the issues of philanthropy, how all of those uh, come together. And that, as Stan said, I, I personally, I take faith very seriously and uh, I take wealth and philanthropy seriously too. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But let me just say up front where I come from. Uh, I am a Christian, and I happen to believe that following Christ is not a part-time job. You don't get time off, you don't get to bracket off your job or your marriage or your bank account or your taste in recreational reading. The Dutch statesman and theologian Abraham Kuyper famously said that not one square inch of life, there is not one square inch of life over which Christ does not declare mine. The Apostle Paul said, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men. It is the Lord that you are serving. So, in my view, devotion to Christ integrates the person and his or her various roles in public life, private life, business life, family life, in pleasure, in celebration, in sorrow, in everything that we are, in everything that we do. Following Christ as a Christian wholeheartedly integrates the human personality and does away with the tendency to compartmentalize our lives. Now, what does this have to do with philanthropy? Well, it tells us that we can't treat philanthropy as the one area in which we're supposed to be good stewards. The Christian perspective is, clear, is very clear. It clearly instructs that to be a good steward in all areas of life, our time, our talent, our treasure, our physical body, our world around us, we have to be good stewards in all of them. Philanthropy is one of, Christian, uh, of the Christian business person's very special responsibilities. If we think about it, philanthropy emerges from business. Somebody has to take the money, make the money before there's anything to give away. We're called to apply Christian standards all the way through the process. This means that running a business well from the ground up is as much a part of good stewardship as philanthropy is. Now, at the most basic level, this means that the ethics we believe in on Sunday also apply the rest of the week. Stealing on Sunday is called theft. On Monday through Friday, we don't get to call the same act a tactical allocation of resources. It's theft every day of the week. Sunday isn't the one day God gets. Sunday is the day Christians are supposed to slow down and remember that God gets every day of the week. But there's a deeper integration of faith, business, and philanthropy, and that's what I want to talk about today. Let me read something to you, and 
I think possibly you've heard it before. In the beginning, God created. Now, the whole creation narrative follows. But first, however, we see in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God, which suggests that he was there first. Now, if, if you don't believe that, then the rest of what I'm going to say today may not resonate as much with you. But I digress. Let me say, in the beginning, God created. God created light, and it was good. God created land, and it was good. And so forth and so on, and we begin to get the idea that God's creative activity is, in fact, a good thing. And then God creates men and women, and he makes us in God's own image. Now, at that point, when we're told that God made us in his image, what do we know about God? Only that he was there first, that he creates, and that creating is good. Now, we, you and I, are made in the image of the creator. We were made to create, and that is good. Even those present who are not, who are not theists and may have doubts about the creation narrative story would probably agree that creativity, imagination, the ability to think beyond ourselves, beyond our daily food and drink, is what sets us apart from the rest of the jungle. It's not our opposable thumbs. Our minds are capable of high-level, complex thought and creative leaps. We're born to create. We create magnificent buildings, paintings, sculpture, music, poetry. My family's name is on a building in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where, where we live and where uh, we're raising our family, unless they escape, of course, to Princeton. And I'm, I'm, our, our name is uh, on a building there, the DeVos Performance Hall. And I'm proud of our contribution to the community and to that institution in that we've helped to promote the arts, that we've created uh, and, and helped to provide a venue for actors, composers, musicians, ballet dancers, all to share their creative capabilities. But I have to confess to you, I, I don't know how to design a magnificent building even though our daughter's studying architecture and may know that one of these days. I can't paint particularly well. I, I don't sculpt. And I'm certainly not getting up on the stage in a pair of tights. I have no hidden gift for composing beautiful songs, much less composing or, or performing them. So, there's, so is there any way? Is there any way for me to be like the creator? Is there any way for a person like me to create? Well, absolutely. And I think there's some good examples. My wife Betsy and I have thought long and hard about the issue of education. As, as Stan mentioned, we've been involved in, in, in education as a, an avocation for us. And we've discussed about how students and teachers, and what works and, and what doesn't. And we've concluded that the best possibility for children to develop their potential is in an environment where teachers are free not only to teach, but ideally to create in their students a desire to learn. Education is not filling a bucket, but lighting a fire. Teaching is a creative way for us to express ourselves and to help others to create in themselves their own desire to learn.
Or take mothers, for example. Mothers create. Now, there's a term that we sometimes nowadays think is, is rather quaint, but it does say something beautiful. Homemaker. Certain women are, are gifted at creating a home. And out of what? A screaming baby, a cranky toddler, a rebellious teenager, a homesick college student, a work-absorbed husband, and possibly a dog that chews on chair legs. Now that, how do they bring together uh, those, uh, how do they bring together those, those unpropitious ingredients and, and combine them in just such a way as to make a haven, a place of warmth and growth and happiness that's remembered with something akin to reverence by the children who are blessed to live there. You see what I'm getting at? Creative living means taking two and two and getting something much more than four. Good teachers do it. Good homemakers do it. And we, too, need to do it. Whatever your job is, homemaker, teacher, doctor, lawyer, restaurateur, Recognizing and using your God-given creativity is what keeps work interesting. It keeps us from burning out. We have a higher purpose. We're not just shuffling things from one place to another. We're participating in a divine act. We're doing something that God likes to do. Now, how amazing is that? This is how an occupation can, can be a vocation or even a divine grace. That's true uh, even for those of us in business. Hard to imagine for some, but business can be a divine grace. Now, how does God want us uh, to, to do all this? And, and the concern about business is, well, does God want us all to make a lot of money? I think the answer to that is no. And it's certainly not my point. He doesn't call every Christian to make a lot of money. He didn't call the apostles to make a lot of money. The so-called health and wealth gospel, the notion that if you're a good Christian, then God automatically will make you rich, is, in my view, unbiblical. Mother Teresa did not have much of an investment portfolio or retirement plan, but no one can deny her faith or her impact in the world. On the other hand, there's nothing inherently wrong about money or having the gift of making money. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money itself is value neutral. It can be used or abused. The worship of money is the problem. Francis Bacon put it this way, money makes a good servant, but a very bad master. This warning applies to all of us. None are left out. It supplies to us whether we're rich or poor. So for those of you who plan to take the business world by storm, set your minds at rest. Though some portray wealth as a sort of shameful, sullied condition, there's nothing inherently wrong with making or having money. So here's a key point I, I hope you'll take away from this lecture. Making money is a legitimate form of divine creativity. Just as teachers create learning, and homemakers create home. Business people, entrepreneurs, capitalists create wealth, and that too is good. And that's right, I said create wealth. The idiom making money is in fact correct. 
Wealth can be made, created, and it should be. And I'm not suggesting that you begin producing and printing Ben Franklin's in the basement of your home either. I'm saying that wealth, real wealth, of which paper money is only a representation, can really be thought about in two ways. The first way says that wealth is like a pie. You can divide it up into pieces, but there's still only one pie to go around. So if you get more, I get less. This is kind of a Robin Hood view of of wealth. The closed system view that says money is not created, but simply redistributed amongst ourselves. Now this view divides wealth, and while creativity on the other side multiplies wealth. The creative person who has a talent for business creates new opportunities, new jobs, new and more efficient ways of doing things, and in so doing, she or he creates wealth. That's hard for us to grasp because it's abstract and there isn't a specific moment when all of a sudden it happens. But maybe we can visualize it this way. The way a Catholic priest, a, a friend of mine, explains it. Think of a musical conductor. The conductor probably can't play the various instruments as well as the best musicians in her orchestra. And uh, certainly isn't playing the instruments during the performance. But what she's doing is orchestrating, organizing the skills of the various musicians. She may have even arranged the particular musical composition. This is the creativity, the calling of the entrepreneur. This skill of, orchest- of orchestrating is the gift that God bequeaths to entrepreneurs, and God calls them to use that talent with all their might, to use high-level abstract thinking skills, creativity, to orchestrate the capital under their stewardship, to orchestrate the people who have chosen to work with them, and to do it in such a way that they create more than was there before. Now, if there's only a good idea to meet a need, or only the capital, or only the co-workers with their very real gifts and their willingness to commit their efforts, but no one to orchestrate, far less wealth gets created. Now, we don't know this simply from abstract reasoning or just by studying some particular successfully corporations uh, around this country or around the world. We actually know it by studying history. Look at the countries in the last century that made life hard for entrepreneurs. The countries that rounded them up in purges or treated their profits as, as illegitimate and commandeered most of their gains through a punitive tax system or Byzantine regulatory system. These countries, countries that viewed the entrepreneur's every move as calculated to exploit the nation and its people, ended up with reduced economic growth, stagnation, scarcity, and in the most extreme cases, starvation. Now compare that to countries where the entrepreneur has been seen as a force of creativity and wealth creation, where every dollar she or he earns isn't viewed as a a dollar filched from the common and static pie. In those countries, every class has grown wealthier. Now, obviously, entrepreneurs must be required to operate in the boundaries of the law just like the rest of us. But within those parameters, if they're allowed to use their skills they're allowed to use their creativity that everyone prospers. Is this philanthropy? No, it's not. 
but it is good stewardship. It's a way of life and livelihood that helps others every bit as much as straight up philanthropy does. And we've seen it again and again in the past. We're seeing it in countries like Estonia and Ireland and Switzerland. These countries have moved from a high tax model to, that sees entrepreneurs as the enemy to a model that sees enterprise and initiative and risk taking as a path to greater wealth and opportunity for all. Now, this is, uh, we've seen it happen in, in Hong Kong, a, a nation that was poor in natural resources. While its neighbor next door during the 50s, uh, then communist China, a nation rich in natural resources, was, was struggling and yet Hong Kong was prospering. Uh, so 50 years later, China's finally getting the message. And they're moving by fits and starts toward an economic system that sees the entrepreneur as a creative force. And their, their economy is progressing very well too. Now, we're not accustomed to thinking of making money as a beautiful thing. But if it's done honestly, the creation of wealth is beautiful. Now, we have to look at the other side, of course, the division of wealth that can be not quite so pretty. Division of wealth or redistribution can be a tug of war, a battle, not bringing out the best in people. Uh, people who are told that there's only one piece of pie and a lot of hungry mouths. It certainly breeds envy and violence. So instead of taking the food off your plate and putting it on mine, those who believe that new wealth can be created look for new ways to produce more food for both of us, even using less farmland. Let's try a new seed variety, a new method of crop rotation, organic composting techniques. Let's brainstorm. Let's try something new. Let's be creative. That's not Pollyannish. It's, in fact, the history of American agriculture for the last 200 years. So whereas redistribution is a closed system, the creation of wealth is an open, growing, organic, and focused system, focused on serving the needs of others. Because an entrepreneur has no choice but to serve, to be a steward and a servant. An entrepreneur could be a selfish son of a gun in his private life, but, if he's other direct, but unless he's other-directed in his work as an entrepreneur, unless she or he is focusing on meeting the needs and wants of the customer, the enterprise will inevitably fail. This is just good common sense. If my goods or services don't meet your needs, you won't buy them. So the business person is forced, as it were, to think about other people, to think creatively about their wants and needs. If she's good at that, if she thinks well about other people's real needs, then those other people buy her products or services, and everyone wins. That brings me back and brings all of us back to being made in the image of God. Creativity is itself inherently other-directed. The Creator didn't just make this beautiful earth and leave it sitting around without anyone to appreciate it. He put us here put us here to enjoy the work of his hands. And we're reminded of that every spring, aren't we, when we, when we see new life beginning all over. Now you think about the different occupations that I've mentioned. The creativity involved in those vocations benefits others. 
But what artist wants to create something that no one else will ever see or enjoy? We long for others to enjoy our talents and our lives. This is as true of the entrepreneur as of anyone else. Some businesses produce shoddy products and try to pass them off, that's true. Some products are imperfect, certainly. Some entrepreneurs uh, market what's essentially cultural poison, absolutely true, but none of that changes the fact that we succeed in business only by serving others well. Capitalism demands a sensitivity to the needs and wants of others and requires us to serve others first before achieving our own objectives. That leads me to the final point I'd like to make this evening. I said that God made us like himself. It isn't just that he's creative. He made us creative. So if we want to be as much like him as possible, we need to look for ways to help empower other people to be creative too. Good parents, good teachers do this, and ideally successful entrepreneurs will also do this through their philanthropy. How? By treating other people as thinking, imaginative human beings who are also created by the architect that created them. And this doesn't happen automatically. It isn't a foregone conclusion that as soon as a philanthropist decides to give. Philanthropy needs to be done in a way that validates and encourages the creative capacities of those in need. Everyone needs to be fed, but no one is just a mouth to feed. So it makes philanthropy hard. That's why effective philanthropy demands a lot of careful thought and oftentimes tough decisions. That's why philanthropists often have to go against popular opinion. That's why philanthropists need to continue to direct their efforts toward efforts that empower individuals toward future self-sustainment and self-realization. Not just giving only enough to meet their needs today to find ourselves simply responsible for meeting those same needs tomorrow and the day after and the day after. The easy thing, of course, is just to meet today's needs. But if we do that, we risk creating dependence and removing an individual's dignity. Do we need to meet those needs? Oh, of course we do. But we can do and need to do so much more. For each of us, I think we have, a, in addition, a moral responsibility to do no harm with the talents that God has given us. That rule doesn't just apply to physicians. For the philanthropist, this means we must do no harm with our giving, despite the best of intentions. Allow me an illustration, if you would. A friend of mine who was a frequent visitor to Africa had established a trusting relationship with local leaders in the African country where he was visiting. When he asked, what more can we do to help here? He was shocked by the answer. Stop sending us clothes. As he explored why he should stop doing what appeared to be such a noble thing, he discovered that clothing sent into the country and distributed for free was in fact undercutting local manufacturers many of whom were small family businesses, oftentimes run by women in the community, and were reducing 
them from one more area of sustainability and creativity for themselves, their family, and their community. What seemed to be a good thing was actually doing significant harm. We must do the difficult work of reasoning out ways of helping that elevate our fellow men and women. Ways for them to use their own talents, their own creative minds, ways that encourage them to be responsible and creative and self-supporting. Giving money away is easy. Giving it away well is very hard. And as I mentioned earlier, oftentimes not without criticism. Betsy and I have been engaged in the area of education. And specifically, we've given considerable time and money toward the efforts that encourage education reform through expanded school choice for K-12 students and their families. Specifically, we've been focusing on low-income families in this area. Now, we believe that this is the best possible way to engage all parents and students, regardless of income level, in the exercise of education at its most basic, the choice of what school to attend. We also believe that this type of change is what's become, in what's become the largest monopoly in America, the monopoly called public education. That this kind of change will release a wellspring of innovation and creativity amongst teachers and administrators alike as they dare to consider new opportunities and possibilities in a more open and, dare I say, competitive environment. Now, while the easy answer that some would espouse would be to give money to sustain the existing system and help overcome its claims of the lack of financial support, Betsy and I are not convinced that simply doing so would be responsible philanthropy or responsible stewardship. We're not convinced the current approach to public education here in America represents the right solution, the best solution for the future. Nor do we think it represents true compassion for those who are attending bad schools. But as you can imagine, our thoughts are not without a certain amount of controversy. And the rhetoric can be harsh. With the Michigan Teachers Union during the course of the campaign even claiming that, quote, Dick DeVos despises our public schools. But our commitment to responsible stewardship sustains us toward a future of improved education for all of America's children. These are but true examples where good philanthropy is definitely not for wimps where good stewardship is not for the faint of heart. But this is the kind of work that we must do as donors and as leaders in our communities and in our businesses. And if we can do this, if we can give someone the opportunity to create, to be an active force for good in this world, not just a charity case or a victim, but a, a, an active, meaningful participant in creation, then we've done something truly philanthropic in the best and deepest sense of the word. We've loved mankind in one of the same ways that God loves us. So philanthropy, it's not for wimps, nor is entrepreneurship, nor is Christianity. 
But the good news is God didn't make us to be wimps either. He made us creators in his image. Men and women who can stand up, take risks worth taking, take the responsibility that is ours, make the most of the talents and opportunities he has given to each and every one of us, and most importantly, to reach out and help others to do the same. I thank you for your time this evening, and I look forward to our continued dialogue. What uh, Bob Wathnow has suggested is that we give Dick a couple of moments uh, to relax after that wonderful talk, and I'm going to make a couple of comments, and then we're going to open the floor for uh, questions. Uh, it was really, I think, uh, a wonderfully constructed talk um, and a very interesting talk. It's a long time since I've heard um, the message that you delivered in quite such a clear and straightforward fashion, and I think it's really... It's really quite uh, fascinating. I want to put it in a little bit of context uh, as a way of beginning uh, the discussion. I want to make a, a, a distinction that you don't make explicitly, but I think is, uh, lies behind what you've had to say here. You've been talking about uh, philanthropy, and I think uh, Dick makes quite clear what the, and I'm going to expand a little bit here, what the, what the religious, moral, and political reasons uh, for that are. They're set out with admirable uh, clarity and cogency, uh, I think. You don't discuss uh, the alternative view, but you, I think, put it down um, by indirection at the very end of the talk when you say, um, uh, we can do this if we can give someone an opportunity to create, to be an active force for good in this world, not just a charity case. You're distinguishing, I think, between philanthropy and charity, and this in fact is the historic distinction that we in the United States have made since the very late 19th century, very early 20th century. In fact, what's fascinating about the talk is that the message you're delivering really is the message, I think, delivered by John D. Rockefeller and some of the greatest of the original uh, philanthropists. The distinction they wanted to make was one between philanthropy and charity. They understood charity as the giving of alms, uh, as the redress of individual cases of distress, whether it's illness or poverty or ignorance. And while they honored that, and certainly there's a long Christian tradition of charity, uh, and every religious tradition has uh, that um, in it, they, they felt it didn't go far enough. And they felt particularly that their uh, sense of their Christian sense of the stewardship of wealth called upon them to go beyond that, to be philanthropists. And what they meant by that was to think through the causes, uh, the underlying causes of the conditions that gave rise to charity, because they felt a more important and a nobler calling for a Christian was to try to identify those causes and to. Uh, root them out, uh, and they felt this was more efficient, but and certainly more effective. You didn't put it exactly that way, but I, I think that model fits for what you have to say here. And I think uh, 
the work that you and Betsy are doing in education is a good example of that. You have, I think, and I heard a lot about it at dinner, you have very clear, quite clear and cogent analysis of what is wrong with the availability of uh, public education, particularly for poor people in this country, and you have a variety of reasons why you think alternative, particularly choice, uh, being made available to people is important. And the interesting thing to me about that is that can be simply a political movement or a political observation. It can take philanthropic form, and you've done both, I think, um, if, I, if I understand it correctly. Um, and we have a long tradition of exactly that sort of thing. For Rockefeller, by the way, um, both Rockefeller and Carnegie discovered that what was happening in their own businesses, they had assigned clerks to write checks uh, to people who wrote in and asked for help. Uh, they were rectors of churches whose roofs had burnt down or um, ministers who wanted organs or more likely uh, widows of former employees who didn't have a pension and needed to be helped. And they wrote checks for all of those purposes. But they realized that in the end they weren't solving those problems except they were alleviating those problems. So philanthropy was the way to do more. The flip side of that, though, and that's stop with this, is that one man's uh, notion of philanthropy uh, is another man's notion of the uh, diversion of energy from that rightfully belongs to the state, to the private sector. So you at one point at the end of the talk speak about the largest monopoly in America, the monopoly called public education. I certainly understand where you're coming from. On the other hand, another way of stating that is to say that all 50 states uh, provide uh, a constitutional right to a free public education of some sort, and an economist would call that a public good. So that we're talking about really different versions of a public good here. And I think the crucial question for philanthropy in this country is where it stands in relationship to the provision of public goods. You have a very complete political and economic philosophy. I think it all makes sense within the terms that you've used. I think there are alternative ways of looking at the same facts and coming to a different conclusion. What I think is wonderful about the talk um, is that you are so clear and thoughtful about what you are about. So I think there's a tremendous amount to uh, talk about here. I want to open it now for questions, and then Dick will take the questions and respond. But I would love to start with a question from a student, preferably an undergraduate, if, if one of you has such a question. And you shouldn't be shy. I'm prepared to wait a minute until somebody isn't shy. It's a tradition we've been trying to get going at this university. Robbie George started it, and it's a good one, uh, of trying to make sure that we get involvement from students. Yes, please. This is Caitlin. Thank you, Caitlin. Now I'm going to turn over to Dick. Thank you, and uh, we're 
Thank you for allowing me a public opportunity to give advice to our daughter. <laughs> uh, and make it sound like I'm talking to you all the time, so this is a wonderful thing. The, um, I think the thing that I, I hope Alyssa would, uh, would, uh, would uh, see that we've said consistently to her, and I guess my response would be to, to do all that you can to discern your passion. Do all that you can to discern your gift set. Uh, because there's much to be done. Uh, there's so much to be done that none of us can do it all. And the question for us is how do we link our, how, what, what are we going to be able to do that's going to really tap into what we, in my view, were uniquely created and wired to do? Uh, maybe it's a skill set or maybe it's an area of particular passion. Um, I, don't, I don't have a skill set in, in, in academics. I, I joked earlier with the group that uh, I have teachers, I'm sure, are just stunned that I have anything to do with education uh, because that wasn't my background. But what I had was a passion for justice. And that justice, I saw injustice happening in a way that, uh, within schools, that was committing children and young people to, to lives that oftentimes, far too often, led them into incarceration or led them into other areas of, of, of great trouble and tragedy where, where it was a lose-lose-lose proposition. And it became more than just sort of an intellectual discussion for us about is this a good thing to do or not. It became an area where we felt to our core that this was wrong and that we had to do something about it. We just simply could not not do anything about it. When you identify that passion in yourself, and that's not easy to do, Those are, that's hard work. When you identify that passion, that will help to organize how do you go about it and what steps do you take. And how do you marry then your skill set and that passion to be able to truly make a difference, truly make an impact. I do believe that you can. Uh, allow me maybe one possibly example. It, it, people say, "Well, can one person make a can one person make a difference?" And I've taken a high school class around Grand Rapids, our hometown, and showed them some of what's going on in the downtown area and some buildings and how people are now moving into our community. There's a vitality in the center of our city that's compelling. Yes, we've got a lot of work to do, but it really started uh, that next wave of renaissance of our city started when I called a meeting and asked for a few people to come and sit and let's talk about these ideas. It wasn't my ideas, but see, you start, one person starts a ball rolling and brings others into the mix, and the next thing you know, you change a community. You can do it. You can do it. She can. As in, she can do it. It's another student. Possibly I could just clarify a, a point, too, on the education. If you, uh, the, the, the whole discussion of education, because I want to just be very clear uh, that as we talk about public education, um, what I was referring to is the system we currently utilize in this country of K-12 education. 
It is not the idea of public education. I think we've, we've, we've confused our terms a bit. Many who defend the current system use the words defending public education, and if you challenge the current system that you are opposed to the idea that every child in our country should have the opportunity of the best education we can as a community provide to them. To me, public education is an idea, a glorious and an important idea that's, that's created a, a, civic, a, a, a civil society and opportunity. It is not a specific system of education, it is an idea that all should have that opportunity, no matter what their background or otherwise. And uh, therefore, we should be willing to challenge and should be free to challenge how we execute that as long as we're consistent with what I think is a critically important goal we, re we retain. Um, two questions. Right. You mentioned how um, you know, at times there were, there were challenges that forced you to work outside the kind of established institution system such as in public education. And yet, I mean, from your own political experience, there's obviously you know, a distinguished desire to work within the system as well to change it from within. Um, how do you, in kind of mapping out your impact on, on, on these sort of needs of the communities, balance that sort of um, internal change and external change for existing systems? It's a great question. I don't know that there's a, uh, that there's a one, uh, one easy answer. Uh, I do, um, uh, I do find that, that, that there's a, I, I guess I have a particular uh, view of a, of a change theory that, that, I, uh, that I hold on to, which has, I think, led me to run for governor and become a part of the system, if you will, move from outside to inside. And that, that theory of change is this, that, that organizations, be they government or religious or civic or business private, tend to exist in a semi-frozen condition where incremental change is basically the order of the day. And it's very hard to have within those systems very substantial change. There's just too much loaded up against it. However, at certain times, oftentimes because of external factors, occasionally because of internal factors or leadership, you put a period of thaw. And where all of a sudden the temperature goes up in the room and the organization becomes free and the molecules become loose and more and liberated and able to move much more rapidly. And within that period of time, dramatic change is in fact possible. And you've got to be in that organization to be able to drive that change. Externally, external factors will oftentimes precipitate the change, but then you also need leadership internal to the organization to facilitate that change. Um, I saw that happen in my own business career where external factors forced a total reorganization and rethinking of our business model. Uh, and during that time, extraordinary amounts of change were in fact achievable and achieved um, as a result of external pressures. And uh, so it's my view, is my view that in Michigan that it was a time when external factors were suggesting that Michigan needed dramatic change and that what we needed was internal leadership who were willing to execute that change and who understood that there was, that it was time and it was that it was time to get it done. Now, obviously my view was shared by a million and a half people, which was not quite enough to get me elected, <laughs> but uh, it wasn't without merit, I don't think. Uh, we had a few folks, a lot of folks stand with us. Had I run four years ago, a million and a half would have won. I take some solace in that.
Um, first of all, I guess what we've tried to teach and what we've tried to live in our lives, and I can only speak to how we've tried to live, is that first of all is to live like this. Uh, to live with an open hand. That what is placed in your hands uh, you don't view as in this manner, but you view it in this way. To say, what is, how am I now if things are placed in, the, in my hands? Um, be they resources or be they talents and skills? How do I utilize these in responsible stewardship? The rich young ruler story uh, and the, the biblical text uh, in, uh, of, uh, of the rich man's entry to the kingdom of heaven are troubling, are concerning. And I think they suggest, as I look at it, that they suggest uh, that it's uh, really, uh, that, that there's great danger in wealth and that for some it may be better that they give it all away for that rich young ruler apparently he was more committed to his wealth than he was to his faith and when it was called on the question it became clear the answer uh, so what what where does our you know where does our uh, obligation lie or stated differently do does wealth have the possibility of renew, removing us from our sense of reliance on God? The answer, I believe, is yes, it does have that risk. And therefore, we must be very, very careful uh, and very prayerful about that. Accumulating wealth, so that there's a wealth that can be applied to major tasks that must be done is not, in my view, inherently wrong. Some may choose to do it differently and give all of their money away. I think that's a question that we'll all have to answer in our heart as to where our risks lie and what our responsible stewardship is. It's um, if oftentimes, as you as, as you know, with your CEO, uh, you're busy surviving and not thinking about some of these things. Um, many are. I've had I have had conversations, and there are. Um, and I've been, Betsy and I have participated in groups where that does happen. However, and I'm not suggesting by any means it happens everywhere, but there are there, there have been forums and organizations that we've been a part of that. Where that is a dialogue, where we, where, where there is a dialogue about those those tensions and the, and the unique challenges and the unique risks and the unique responsibilities that we have, uh, not only as as leaders but as potentially leaders, wealthy leaders. Uh, and and what are our exposures um, within the context of our faith? Uh, I, it does happen. It does not happen in the boardroom. You have to seek it out been my experience. We've tried to have some of that conversation. Uh, some of that happens in our community of West Michigan, but that's a little bit unique because of the, the faith history of the West Michigan community. One more question. Hi, uh, Mr. Katz, um, um, I have a movie in mind, uh, title which I'm forgetting, an old black and white movie from the early 50s, like where these 
um, Joe Smith Club sprout up all over America. Professor Stout has the students watch it. Um, and, but the civil society and all these civic groups become so, um, uh, thrive so much around America that the welfare state really ceases to function. And the movie shows all these welfare agencies um, sort of going out of business. And I wanted to ask, what, uh, what do you see as the proper relationship between entrepreneurs and government? And what role does the public sector have in being creative and attempting to accomplish these same ends, or doesn't have any role in these tasks? Uh, I, it's a great. It's a great question, and uh, we struggle. You know, we've struggled with that from the beginning of our nation. Uh, my personal. My personal view is that uh, the that innovation and and uh, creativity uh, is best uh, is best accomplished in the context of, of private organizations and, and private entities that are not as subject to political pressures and other external pressures that are distract from from achieving tangible results. Uh, now, I've, uh, that's what I say, it's not as much political pressure. I mean, I think we have to acknowledge, as, as I will often say, when two or more are gathered, politics is present. Uh, that's inevitable, but the question is how dominant does politics become um, in the process of achieving solutions? My observation has been that it becomes oftentimes a distraction in public entities and private, so where we can create opportunities where individuals and, and groups are free to work uh, privately toward achieving objectives, that that in fact advances uh, the civic good and it must be done, obviously, in the context of the greater good, but uh, and, and, and in, in a way that, that is obviously constructive and not destructive. But uh, that being said, uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, of private uh, opportunities for creativity, innovation. I also happen to think oftentimes that private organizations are frankly better at even executing simple tasks, uh, more efficient, more effective, at just simply getting it done, again, because it does not in introduce politics into the equation. They exist simply for a purpose, and they have to serve their purpose. Tremendous need, and by the way, I uh, I thank you for for saying it because it uh, uh, for the reality that some organizations don't get the job done, and in fact, uh, I, I that, that concerns me greatly because as uh, someone involved in you know in private organizations trying to do good, 
Um, I am as offended by that as I'm offended as a business person by business people who behave badly and uh, just simply, just simply unacceptable. Yeah, I don't. Know, I don't think there's any. I mean, there there is so there is so much that uh, is to be done, and and that really comes out of that. The, the comes has got to come out of the the philanthropist passion, and and desire from whether it's whether it's from those things that are related to protecting and preserving our our environment, to those that that protect and preserve our culture, our art, um, that serve, that reach out to serve those individuals who are desperately in need of additional support and assistance. There's so much to be done, I, I would hesitate even to, to, to be more specific. Um, there is much to be done, and I would hope that philanthropy would never be the... Uh, would never be the enemy of charity. And while we must be constantly, in my view, looking to find solutions, longer-term solutions for real human need, that we must, at the same time, be meeting those needs. We cannot look past reality. Thank you very much. Well, I want to first thank uh, the Dahl family, but also, uh, obviously, uh, Dick DeVos, for just an unusually thoughtful um, and beautifully presented uh, talk tonight. You've given us a lot to think about. You've started a conversation that I think is going to go on a very long time. We're also grateful, obviously, to Bob Wuthnow and the Center for providing a space for these kinds of discussions on this campus. So could I ask you to join me in thanking uh, Dick in particular for such a wonderful talk? And then I'd like to invite all of you to join us uh, for a little reception right out in what's known, I think, as the hyphen behind us. Thanks very much. <laughs>